I could have predicted that there would come a time where you would have to stop and you would have to listen and cover people that you don't particularly care about or respect based on the way that you cover those communities. It shouldn't be surprising that as our nation is embroiled with trying to answer long-standing questions of race and equity, newsrooms would find themselves struggling with how to represent and cover more diverse communities. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Deborah Douglas is a Eugene S. Pulliam Distinguished Visiting Professor of Journalism at DePaul University and a senior leader with the Op-Ed Project. Deborah is also the former managing editor of MLK50, Justice Through Journalism, editor-in-chief of the Sun-Times Red Streak Edition, and writes articles and opinion pieces for outlets including Oprah Magazine, Vice, American Prospect, and Ebony, among many others. Her forthcoming book is U.S. Civil Rights Trail, A Traveler's Guide to the People, Places, and Events that Made the Movement. Welcome to the podcast, Deborah. Thank you, Michael. So to start off with, tell me a little bit about your, your journalist journey. How did you become a journalist? How did you become a, a writer, an opinion writer? kind of a nerd. So I decided I wanted to go into journalism when I was eight years old. I noticed that adults had the the propensity to not listen to each other. And I just thought if I could just get people to listen to each other and share information and hear each other, that things would be better. There'd be much more clarity. And then I just kind of put two and two together. I love reading books and you know, I've loved research. And then once I get stuck on something I want to do, I just kind of stick with it. So I've made that my mission in life. And I studied at Medill. I studied at Northwestern. And there's this critique right now about the usefulness of journalism school. But I'm proud that I went to Northwestern University. I'm proud that I studied at, at J School. You know, I grew up in humble circumstances. And I just wanted to you know, prepare myself, avail myself of the very best education to prepare me for a life of journalism. And so that's what I did. I went to Medill so that I could start my journalism career in earnest with prepared to do all the things I would need to do. So what is it about the, the journalism degree do you think that sort of helped you? Well, actually, you know, it was Northwestern. So I really got a really good liberal arts education, I feel like. I just feel like for me, you know, having been born in the Midwest and growing up in the South, like I said, in, in, in humble circumstances, you know, to working class parents, being able to be in a program that just kind of walks you through step by step of what the expectations are is something that is something I personally needed. I didn't have a lot of exposure to the world. And so that kind of, you know, prepared me to have an inkling of what I might face when I went into the bigger world. So what is it you're doing down in DePaul? What, what are you teaching? So as the Pulliam professor of journalism, I get to teach whatever I want to teach. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't think that journalism is a perfect profession. And again, there are a lot of critiques raging right now about how to make journalism better. I'm knee deep in the solutions journalism world and There's an orthodoxy about objectivity and whether or not that's an orthodoxy that actually holds up in the world that we live in today. We're going to talk about an article that you wrote for Neiman Reports, but I wasn't too, I'm not too sure if it was in the article that that you had written, but I I read something recently where where people were making the argument about objectivity actually, you know, being a, a system that sort of promotes racism in the coverage of 
of stories, or at least, you know, sort of maintains a, a white perspective on the way that newsrooms are covering the news. Do you have a thought about that? Yes, in a way I do. When you're working in a newsroom, it becomes uh, a question of what is the rubric for objectivity? You know, how do you add up all the pieces to decide whether or not you've sucked out all of the bias of a statement or a situation or a scene you're describing or event that you're covering? And so the way that it gets interpreted in a newsroom situation very often is that it sort of flanks to a white white male default understanding what actually is objective and what is true because there is just so much about the world the sort of like dominant culture doesn't really understand about underserved communities that we're covering or underserved communities that we're not really fully covering because there's just not a full understanding of the true lived experience of those groups so yeah i fall into the camp of i'm a critic of the of the objectivity orthodoxy. And I think that objectivity is something that you can pursue. It's a journey too, but it's not something that is always fully present. And to believe that you're being fully object objective in any given situation is a fallacy. Yeah. And I kind of agree with that. And this is something I've been I'm really kind of been thinking about over the last few years, because we've had a, several guests who've come on the podcast to, to talk about this very question about objectivity, can journalists be objective? And the old standards, are, you know, that's supposed to be one of the pillars that, that we that we follow. But I find sometimes that objectivity is actually, or prevents you from, from having to commit or to go deeper. It's almost like, you know, I've checked that box. I'm being objective. I've, I'm not taking one side or the other. And it doesn't really, you know, some stories require you to, to challenge yourself and to go deeper and to explore different sides. And so I think it's almost a, a lazy way of not, you know, committing yourself to go deeper into a story and try to see see and present different sides. I think it also sort of figures into this whole idea of false equivalency that just because one person says one thing, if I say something else, if I interview somebody else and include their opinion, then I've, I'm being objective in, in some way and I'm being fairer. I think that's kind of problematic. We see sort of these new ethics in the re new reality of the world sort of reformulating themselves. I think objectivity is something we need to take a hard look at, especially when we're talking about things like solutions journalism. I mean, can you be objective in a solutions journalism you know, situation? I don't know. I mean, because really what you're doing is you're, you're sort of embedding yourself in a community or you're you know, trying to find answers within a community by listening and engaging. Yeah, have a point of view when you're entering into a solutions journalism story so right there your quote-unquote objectivity is being challenged because you start with the premise that there is a problem or that there is a solution or you know you just have a point of view about the community that you're covering or the issue that you're about to delve into so I mean I think that objectivity is a really great goal but to hold it up as this like golden standard that some people always employ it correctly and then other people who don't are not worthy is not something that holds up today. Yeah. And where those people can be, you know, their work is then discredited because they weren't being objective, like it covered something from a point of view. But, you know, I've always felt that when you go into a story, you tell the story that you encounter. You know, and for me, that's where objectivity comes in is like, you know, I'm going in with a clean slate 
obviously I have some preconception. I gotta, I know where this neighborhood is. I may know who the players are, but once I get there, my job is to report the story that's there. And that may be very different from what I would have preconceived before I started. Right. While at DePaul, I've just basically created classes from scratch. So I have taught solutions journalism and I've taught cross-cultural journalism in two different kinds of ways. The first year I did it with a, with a reporting approach. And the second year I did cross-cultural journalism with a focus on engagement because there's really a push out in the, our community right now to cover our communities in a three-dimensional way, not in a two-dimensional way to reach out and touch, you know, the members of our audience and really be in relationship with them. And so last fall, I challenged my students to better engage with their community, which, you know, Greencastle is a small town. It's the, you know, typical small town and gown type situation. And so even though it's a a small school with not a large student population and not a large town population, my students were challenged to really like peel back the layers and really, you know, break outside of their bubbles and talk and meet with people and understand people they they wouldn't normally speak to if they were operating, you know, the typical way that college students do. And that ended up, the class sort of like climaxed into an event I pulled together called the People's Supper. It's an organization that gives you a blueprint to bring communities together to engage and be in relationship with each other. And so my students, they hosted a People's Supper, they ran the People's Supper, they they facilitated discussions at the at the tables at our supper. And then I had a team of students actually documented in video and audio. So that was pretty exciting for to get them out of this mode of, okay, I'm just gonna sit down and write something and to really, you know, view journalism as being a three-dimensional approach. So what did they take away from that? The takeaway is to really understand your community at a deeper level than than when you started. And so college students, you know, can be siloed. You know, they talk to people in their fraternities or they're in communion with people on their teams or in their clubs. But to actually, like, look up and, like, really see the community and fill in all the outlines of the people that you pass every day and really know their story, to me, is that's the beginning of some really great journalism. Yeah, I agree. Can I ask you a little bit about the the MLK 50 Justice Through Journalism project? Well, what was your experience with that? It was amazing. So MLK 50 Justice Through Journalism was started by Wendy Thomas, a longtime journalist, editor, columnist at the Commercial Appeal in Memphis. And she had this visionary idea to basically keep score during the 50th, the year of the 50th commemoration since Dr. King's assassination in Memphis. She pretty much guessed that it would be a year of people celebrating and patting themselves on the back about how far we've come in society and how far Memphis has come. But Memphis is one of the, is a a poor large city. And so, you know, when you look at the demographics of poverty in Memphis, she knew that there was another story and that she needed to center those people in the stories in that year of the commemoration. And so it actually, you know, it was successful. We centered the issues of poverty, power, and policy the first year of MLK 50, also covering a lot of events 
now it's three years old and it's fully launched and fully funded. And Wendy and the team are just doing a phenomenal job of keeping the record straight and keeping regular everyday working people who are striving and who are trying to thrive. They're doing a great job of, of centering those people in the story. There are people who have established power and then there are regular people who are empowered. And so it's just really important for us in our journalism to make sure that we are listening to those stories and centering them. Really one particularly great example of the difference between an MLK 50 approach and the typical, the typical legacy journalism approach is say, for example, every month when the jobs numbers comes out, you know, there's a heavy focus on how many jobs are created by corporations or what company is doing this and that. But how many times do we write a story about whether or not the jobs pay a living wage, right? The quality of the jobs and then how that feeds everything else in a person's lived experience. So I was just happy to be a part of it. <laughs> and it's funny you talk about that project at the beginning where they're, you know, sort of acknowledging that there'll be a lot of people at the 50th you know, anniversary talking about how far we've come. But then, you know, here we are three years later and it's, you know, a very different situation or maybe it's just not a different situation. It's the same situation, but it's sort of much more in people's consciousness that it's less, less something that, oh yeah, well, because I mean, this is, this is a fault. A lot of journalists, they, they like numbers, they love round numbers If something in an anniversary comes up, they look back and they, and they kind of move on. But this is a story that's still alive and still important to cover. So, you know, you're, you've written a book that's going to be coming out next year, U.S. Civil Rights Trail. How did you uh, come about with that? Oh, I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's why MLK 50 worked, because I've always been concerned about, about the issues of poverty, power, and policy myself and centering underrepresented voices. That's why I work at the Op-Ed Project, which, you know, initially focused on centering women's voices and then other underrepresented people. So I've always had an eye out for hearing people. Like I said, when I was eight years old, I've always been concerned about making sure that people who are not being heard and seen are heard and seen. And so, and I've covered innocence and wrongful convictions and, you know, that's just my life. And so a freelance writer that I worked with for many, many years to the point where we've become friends and we cross pollinate recommended me to the publisher for this, for this book. And, um, you know, it made sense. It made sense in the context of everything that I had done before. And it made sense in the context of MLK 50. And it made sense for who I am as a, as a product of the Great Migration. You know, I, I was born in Chicago and I started school in, in Detroit after the riots, or, or as I should say the uprisings. And, um, and then I went to school, junior high and high school in Tennessee. And so I've actually sort of lived that trail and seen the difference between, you know, what happens when you're outside of the South, where a lot of the story takes place that I'm telling in my book and, and how we relate to the South and the reasons why we ended up in the North. And also having lived in the South and being up close 
to where a lot of these events occurred, you know, that just really left an impression on me, you know, growing up there and to be able to go back and bear witness in a way and introduce that story to a wider audience. To me, it's just the most awesome opportunity I can think of. Wow. I think we, we spoke yesterday, you were sort of uh, doing your final edits to get it out. You know, I wrote a book, it's nothing like what you did, but it, I, I know that once you get to the end of that, you begin to feel this great weight lifted off of you and anticipation as well. Well, I hope so, because this, this story is very much in play. You know, C.T. Vivian and John Lewis that just died and a lot of the same issues that the people, activists, foot soldiers, child foot soldiers in the civil rights movement. A lot of the issues that they, they fought for in that movement are still in play today. Restoring the, the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in full to protect us from voter suppression is very much in play. And just the quality of the public conversation about how we relate to each other is very much in play. And so this is a living story and we're just not just getting up every day and, you know, just checking, like you said, checking out the boxes and following our to-do list. This is history and it's really important and really deep. Yeah. And I think it's important not just to dismiss something because with this idea that we solved this problem before, it's not really not recognizing, as you said, that it's alive and it's ongoing. You know, one of the things that you know, I've been doing this podcast for eight years and, you know, I had guests and educators come on and, you know, it always came up that the issue that everybody knew was a problem for newsrooms was diversity, diversity of, you know, staff, diversity of um, management, diversity of story choice and story perspective. And here we are suddenly, I mean, maybe not suddenly, but it seems like a lot of newsrooms, are, you know, there's a reckoning as there is with, throughout our society about this. And so newsrooms are kind of at this point where, yeah, I guess this problem that we've always known that we've had, we're really going to have to do something about it. What are your thoughts about that? <laughs> it makes, makes my head want to explode. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Everything that I've always known and always experienced. And I'm excited that we're actually having honest conversations, but also I'm really kind of angry that we're still having this, this conversation. You know, I could have predicted that we would be here and we would be in this situation, given the population shifts and the fact that, you know, black and brown communities, especially the brown community is growing. You know, <laughs> I could have predicted that, there would come a time where you would have to stop and you would have to listen and cover people that you don't particularly care about or respect based on the way that you cover those communities. I don't know. I, I mean, I have so many stories and so many thoughts, so many emotions around this issue. And I don't even know that I still don't know if we're really equipped to deal with it. You know, I was downsized. I was the deputy editorial page editor at the Chicago Sun-Times in 2008 when the housing bubble burst and, you know, the economy went into the toilet. And the fact that I was laid off didn't really surprise me. I was laid off in October. Most of my team had been laid off in February. I went to a funeral and came back that afternoon and it was like the rapture happened. <laughs> it's gone. 
And so, I, you know, I knew that I was fortunate and blessed to be able to work there for as long as I did and to contribute to running the endorsement for Barack Obama for president, you know, and things like that. And I had a column and it was wonderful. But I knew that when the downsizing happened at my paper and it was happening elsewhere and I'm looking at the people who are being cut, I knew diversity would be a problem because there was no factor of what if we lose this black voice? What if we lose this brown voice? And what is that going to do to the quality of the product? No, Barack Obama was running for president. I was downsized in October. In November would be the general election. And I worked at a place that decided on the same day to download its only black and its only brown editorial writers because the good white people, the progressives on staff could handle it. And to think that you could be so arrogant that you could understand this whole, whole black and brown lived experience for yourself and you would think that you would not need our expertise and our experience and connection to the community is the height of arrogance and it's the way that this business tends to work. Yeah, I agree. Sadly, I agree. And the reason we're we're talking is, you know, I alluded to to it before. The this article you wrote for Neiman Reports, Meet the New Black Press, and one of the things I liked about it was it was it talked about a lot of bad things, but it also talked a lot of very positive things. These are people who are covering their community in a way that you know is kind of innovative, you know, engaging is very mindful of the perspectives of the community, but also the stories that matter to them. You know, how did you come about writing that story? I was invited into the process, but I think when you said that there are some negative things and positive things, that is a deliberate attempt on my part to do something called asset framing. For too long in in our industry, we've approached, especially underserved communities, the representative communities with a deficit frame. With my Neiman Report story, I made a, a very intentional decision to, uh, cover, to cover the black press uh, with the asset frame as opposed to a deficit frame. I learned about asset framing and deficit framing from Trabian Shorters. He's the founder of Vimy Communities. He's on the board of Solutions Journalism, and he used to be the vice president at the Knight Foundation. So deficit framing defines people by their worst quality or the worst possible thing that has ever happened to them. And that's what happens a lot with the coverage of Black communities. You know, there'll be a negative data point. We'll just focus on that one negative thing as if these are not full people with full lives, with aspirations and other ways of engaging in society. So I try to balance out deficit framing with asset framing, which is to define people by who they are and fully who they are and by their aspirations. That's what I tried to do with the, um, with the Neiman Report story. There are definitely some positive stories where you have Black pain, you have Black joy, and we have people in our community who are innovative and creative. And it's not all about all the things that we don't have. It's about what are we doing with what we do have. Yeah, and the story that you start out the article with about took place in Chicago. To Chicago, it was a widely reported story that started at TMZ about a Chicago house party that had a whole bunch of people. This is during the pandemic, and you know all these other news outlets picked up on it and they sort of amplified it, but none of them 
you know, bothered to do any reporting around it. And it was actually uh, a local journalist, uh, I, I guess it was the tribe, had sent a freelancer to, you know, check this out because this doesn't sound right. I know this community. This doesn't sound right. And it actually turned out to be a very different story. And I like that you started out that way because that the, you're showing, okay, well, this is kind of what the disconnect and the problem is. But at the same time, there's a solution. You, you, there are people who are skilled and because they are in that community and because they are familiar with that community, recognize that there must be a real story out there to be reported. You know, I think that's, that was my takeaway on it. Right. I mean, that basically they approached their community believing that in the humanity of the people who were affected by that story, as opposed to people who just needed to be controlled and chastised, which is how a lot of uh, legacy media approaches our community. You know, one of the things that you said in the article that I found really kind of interesting was black people have always found it necessary for lived experiences to be authentically narrated through vehicles they control. We talked a a moment ago about the mainstream newsroom sort of uh, trying to figure out a way that they can better cover communities of uh, color. But here we have, you know, you make the statement that it seems obvious that the black press would cover the, the black community better. And that's probably a good thing for the community as well. Well, yeah, and it doesn't mean that you're a cheerleader for the community. It's that you really pull back, pull back the layers and really cover those communities with nuance. You know, there is a role for traditional media here if it would just get its house in order. I mean, because frankly, we need the, we need the resources and we need the, the deep bench to cover communities with the level of complexity that they deserve. You know, we could get this, get this done right if we would purpose ourselves to do it. But as we can see now with the sort of media fallout that's ongoing, there hasn't been a commitment to get it right. Yeah, I agree with that. But I think, you know, as I am hopeful about what our society is going through, that somehow we're going to be the better natures in us will help, help us to get to the other side of this in a better way. That's, that's my hope. Now, you know, the the pandemic has challenged journalists to, in many different ways, in, you know, covering sort of complex health stories and the impacts in the community and everything. But your story about the black press, you talk about a couple of news outlets. I think it was Coronavirus News for Black Folks and uh, Le, is it Legrio? Is that how you say it? Oh, the Grio. The, the Grio. Tell me about what they've been, been able to do in the way they cover the pandemic. I love coronavirus news for Black folks. Patrice Peck, she's a young Black journalist who just pretty much got fed up working in traditional media because she just felt like, you know, her ideas when they were pegged to the Black community were always viewed with circumspection. And so she just used this opportunity to use everything that she had at her disposal, her intellect, you know, her education, and her computer to start a newsletter to educate people about the disparate impacts around the coronavirus. And it's just really beautiful because she just has a very powerful voice that's just approachable. And she just has a way of just cutting right through, you know, whatever the issue of the day is and speaking to you in a way where you feel respected and elevated and deeply understood. And then the griot is... Now, the Grio's been around for a while. They've been doubling down on video for quite some time now. Natasha Alpert is actually 
a student of mine. I did not interview her for the story. I interviewed Todd Johnson, who runs the, the Griot, but I actually taught their vice president of digital. I may be saying that title wrong at Medill. She's been doubling down on video for quite some time. And people, especially this particular audience, they really engage with visuals. And so to be able to bear witness and share that experience of how people were actually, how businesses were actually working to survive through the pandemic was something that they could do that legacy outlets or traditional media outlets couldn't do with the level of nuance that the griot could. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned video because that's something else I've been thinking about lately. When you think of things like, well, obviously the, the video of uh, George Floyd, but other instances where this on the street, quote unquote, citizen journalist, you know, people out there taking video. And it's sort of emerged that that type of video has been really kind of central to a lot, a lot of stories that we see that come out of the black community, you know, of the cell phone camera is, is becoming a, a tool to sort of expose these type of stories. And it's interesting to see different news outlets pick up on those and sort of amplify them. I just find it's kind of fascinating. Right. Well, Dr. Alyssa Richardson, I quoted her in my story. She actually wrote this book, Bearing Witness While Black. And she includes citizen journalists or people on the streets using their, their cell phones. The document was happening. She regards them as sort of like the first level of reporting. And then journalists come in and they add the additional context to those stories and images. And then that way we grow stories and better understand, you know, what's going on at the grassroots level. But she regards those people as fully as journalists and the idea that you have to have some certification or particular type of training. Those are just all just sort of false barriers, false walls that don't fully value what people are bringing to, to storytelling and to bearing witness. It's interesting to see how people, as, the, you know, as we've all as a culture become more familiar with the tropes and the, the mechanisms of, of journalism and of, and of just the technology of the internet, and sort of this immediate being able to share information immediately, how now we begin to see it with, through these things like these videos is a way that is a catalyst for, for storytelling and also for movements as well. Anyway, maybe that's not, let's get real granular. It's probably not really different than people like, like nailing dogmas up on, on posts in, in Europe, you know, hundreds of years ago, you know, using the, the technology that you have at the moment to be able to, to rouse public opinion and inspire journalists or, or inspire tourist storytellers. I don't know. Deborah, we, I, this has been a great conversation we could go on, uh, I feel, for a long time talking about this. I, I wish you luck with your book. When, when is that going to be coming out? It comes out in February. Okay. Well, good luck with that. I'm definitely going to grab a copy. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. 
Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, Emilia Brust helped with our booking, Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.